The Bible reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like the old nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take too many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Leviticus, Levitical priest. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the, his kingdom in Israel. This is the word of God. Thanks for that reading, Lee Chu. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. For those of you who haven't met me, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And this morning, we're continuing a series. We're about halfway through it uh, in the book of Deuteronomy that we've titled Choose Life. Fifth book in the Bible, uh, something that was written a long, long time ago. And today, we're jumping from where we looked last week in chapter 7 all the way to chapter 17. We're doing this because chapters 12 to 25 are this little section that expand upon the rules that have already been given in the earlier section. Israel has an agreement, a covenant between God and them. And chapters 12 to 25 are a further explanation, a development of examples of what it means to keep the covenant in all sorts of different situations. And so this week and for the next two weeks, both in home group and on Sundays, we're going to look at some different smaller parts from these 14 chapters to show you how you can read the rest. It's not to say that the verses that we've chosen are the most important. This is intended to be an example that you can go home and keep reading the rest. Now, many of us, this makes us even more conscious of our need for God's help in parts of his word that we're unfamiliar with, but that truly reveals our ongoing need every time we read his word. So I invite you to join with me in asking God for his help now at this time. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that you've given us this opportunity to meet together in this place, uh, to be able to have the book of Deuteronomy in a language we can understand. Thank you for the time you've given us so that we can stop and reflect and think about this together. And we recognise our dependence upon you. We ask that by your spirit, you would enable us to understand what these words mean. And more than that, that by your spirit, you'd enable us to put them into practice so that we live lives that honour you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that true leaders are born, not made. They're well-known, but I would say controversial words, 
that suggests that there's something within some people that allow them to rise up to the top. A particular personality, a, a way with words, a unique ability that results in others looking to them to lead. But truth be told, sometimes I think that we seek out our leaders not because they're naturally brilliant, but based on our own self-interest. At school, when they were picking the sporting teams, we wanted to be on that great leader's team because if we were chosen by them, well, we would win. Other times it is the self-interest of the leader that's even more evident. Think political elections. Each side mocks the other, insisting that they're the greatest. And once the champion has been elected, it doesn't take too long to realise that a popularity contest based on dodgy promises is probably not the best way to pick a leader. The leaders, that leaders would be picked for bad reasons or that leaders, once they've been given power, would misuse it, doesn't surprise God. And so before a monarchy even exists in Israel, God places boundaries around what it means to be king. In the passage that Lee Chu just read for us, Moses lays out for Israel, verse 14, Israel's future folly. Then in verses 15 to 17, he tells us God's rules for picking rulers, and then finally in verses 18 to 20, God's rules that rulers must follow. So what does this chapter in Deuteronomy have to tell us about leadership according to God? Well, I think the first thing we need to recognise is that this talk of kings seemingly comes out of nowhere at all. Prior to chapter 17, the rules have been covering very familiar topics. Don't commit idolatry. Remember to thank God for what he has done for you. This is how you're supposed to treat the priests. These are the festivals you must celebrate. But then, with no introduction at all, verse 14 of chapter 17 starts giving rules for an institution that doesn't even exist at the time. While most of us are familiar with some of the great kings of Israel, King David, King Solomon, we have to remember that back in the time of Deuteronomy, Moses is the human leader of Israel. He does have a lot of very important roles, but one of them is not to be the king. So why talk about kings in Israel when their rule won't actually commence for at least or nearly another 500 years? My suggestion is that verse 14 is a prophesied judgment. It's telling in advance where Israel is going to go wrong. It is said so matter-of-factly that we could very easily miss this point. And there's nothing explicit in the verse itself that states directly that when Israel asks for a king, they are doing the wrong thing. But if we slow down, there is a very obvious problem. Look at the start of verse 14 again. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you the land must be thought of primarily as a gift from God. God has been faithful to his promises, generous in the extreme, the one who has enabled them to conquer the inhabitants of the land. And what will Israel say in response to such a gracious gift? 
Not, wow, thanks God for giving us so much more than we deserve. God, you are an amazing leader. We are so privileged to be led by you. Now, instead, they say, "Uh, God, can we have a king like the other nations have? Which is at its heart a rejection of God as their king. We've seen that the special tent called the tabernacle had been at the centre of Israel's camp for the previous 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Its place there symbolised that God was the king, ruling in the middle of his army, in the middle of his people. And Moses prophesies that one day, once they've been given their heart's desires by that king, they will snub their noses at him and reject him. They will say, we don't want to do things your way. We want to be like everyone else. And their logic is almost too hard to believe. We see its opposite in the news all the time. A sporting team is going badly, so what do they do? Sack the coach. The the assumption is that if they get a better leader, then better results will follow. But Israel already has the best leader imaginable. Israel will be undefeated year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And then, in light of their unprecedented ongoing success, they will say, let's sack the coach and let's employ someone like the coach of all the losing teams. So the stupidity of their request is so blatant, it is shocking. It's actually embarrassing that they would actually make this request. And yet it came true, nearly word for word, about 500 years later in 1 Samuel chapter 8, almost like they were reading it off this script. Now, before we're too quick to shake our heads and tut-tut Israel's anticipated ingratitude, have we ever done anything like this? In thanks to God's gracious provision, have we rejected his instructions and replaced them with something that matches our society's beliefs? God gives us eternal life. And we say, oh, no, thanks. I'll find my purpose in life somewhere else. He gives us peace. And we respond by saying, oh, I'll get my peace by doing yoga and meditation. It grants us security. And we chase after financial investments as the means by which we will attempt to secure our future. All too often, we respond with exactly the same ingratitude, the same ignorance of God's good gifts to us. While he is the king, we all act as if we are. The fascinating thing in Deuteronomy 17 is that Moses doesn't deliver the obvious rebuke that Israel deserves. Instead, he further anticipates what would come true centuries later. God grants Israel the very thing that they ask for. God says to them, if that's what you really want, then sure, you can have a king. But God grants their request and at the same time places restrictions on what that king must be like. While they can choose to have a man as a king, God reserves the right to pick the man. And so verses 15 to 17 give God's rules for picking rulers, 
which can be summarised using the four Ws. You've all heard of the, the three R's of education. Well, these are the four rules, the four Ws, for picking rulers. God's rules for picking rulers strictly limit where from? Weapons, wives and wealth. So firstly, where the king comes from is important. He can't be a foreigner. He must be a local, a good Jewish boy. Now, this is far more important than what happened in Australia a few years ago, where part of our constitution was used to kick those terrible dual citizens out of parliament. This, is, this rule is in Deuteronomy to prevent Israel from looking to the foreign powers who were doing well at the time and saying to their king, come and be our king. God says, don't trust the ones who look like they're doing well on the outside. Trust in the man I will provide. He will be one of you. Now, second W, the king must not chase after weapons. But hang on a second, it says don't collect horses. Well, horse racing is sometimes called the sport of kings. But the ban on horses is not about having too large a collection of racing horses. In Moses' day, to have a horse, particularly a horse from Egypt, meant to have a military advantage over your enemies. Before tanks and missiles and planes, a horse was the weapon of war. And so if a king of Israel depended on the number of horses that he owned, he would lead God's people to trust in the wrong source of security. So don't pick a king who collects horses. Thirdly, the king must not collect wives either. So you don't make the same mistake twice, do you? Well, now perhaps this is a, in part a rebuke of the sexist understanding of women. Polygamy is historically linked to a sexist devaluing of women that treats them as objects rather than as the equals that God made them to be. The very fact that you can use the term collecting wives is evidence of such a perverted way of thinking. But the subtle warning is not just about sexism, it's even more to do with the fact that marriages amongst royalty were yet another scheme to try to ensure security. If the king of Israel married an Egyptian princess, well, then Egypt would become an ally rather than an enemy. And if, a, if that same king also married a Syrian and a Babylonian and a Moabite, well, those, friend, those countries would all become friends rather than foes as well. The more, the merrier. The poor princesses are nothing but pawns in a terrible misguided political game. And so this is more about warnings against making political alliances. But even more dangerous for Israel is that if the king has many wives, foreign wives, his heart will be led astray by them, verse 17. Foreign princesses are ultimately banned, not because they're a different nationality, but because they serve different gods. Like we saw last week, God commanded Israel to destroy the residents of the promised land because if Israel married the foreigners there, they would end up worshipping the foreign gods, the foreign false gods. And this same danger was amplified for kings, as demonstrated very clearly by King Solomon. 
perhaps the most famous polygamist of all time. His marriage to many foreigners opened up the door to trusting in foreign gods and ultimately led to the fall of his kingdom. Now, the fourth and final W for picking rulers is wealth. The God-chosen king must not be wealthy, which seems to be a contradiction in what kings are. Surely to have castles filled with treasure, a golden crown on his head, luxurious horse-drawn coaches is one of the clearest indicators that someone is actually a royal. But God says don't choose a king for Israel who chases after affluence. He's to be humble like his brothers. All these four W's sound so strange, so unkingly, so not royal. And so as we reflect on these restrictions, where from, weapons, women and wealth, we have to ask the question, why? Why does God give such radically different expectations of what his king must be like? And I think the underlying reasoning is all about what the king places his trust in. If the king trusts in the same things as those around him, then Israel will be led to trust in the wrong thing, copying the nations or thinking that their best leader will make things go well is foolishness. So don't trust in the world, God says. Trust in me. If the king trusts in military might, Israel will be placing their trust in something that's not worthy to be trusted. Even today, various countries display their military strength, whether in elaborate parades, missile tests, or sending people off into space. It seems logical to us that the king with the biggest, best equipped, most highly trained and strategically superior army will win. But God says, don't trust in your weapons. Trust in me. It's the same again with the wives. If the king trusts in political alliances, Israel will be led to trust in how clever they can be politically. If they can only negotiate better, they can ensure a peaceful future for themselves. But God says, don't trust in your diplomacy skills. Trust in me. If the king trusts in how much wealth he has secured, he thinks that what he secures makes the the future certain. But God says, don't trust in what you have, trust in me. And so at the heart of God's rules for picking rulers is a demand for a very different style of leadership, one opposite to the world's way of doing things, one in which the leader doesn't ask his followers to trust in him. But as the king, he trusts in God and then leads the people to do likewise. Now, obviously, there are some very significant lessons that we can apply to our own lives from these verses. But we need to recognise, first of all, that these verses did become the standard by which the kings of Israel were judged. It's very worthwhile for your homework to go home and read 1 Kings chapters 10 and 11 in light of Deuteronomy 17. What would otherwise be considered a fabulous record of Solomon's achievements, his greatness, is actually evidence of all the ways that he failed, by which he broke the covenant. 
everything recorded that the world considers impressive is proof that over time Solomon drifted from his trust in God. But these verses weren't only written for picking kings in Israel a long time ago. While some kings did some good some of the time, clearly the only Israelite king who ever met these standards perfectly is King Jesus. And so reading these verses, this side of the cross, we see that Deuteronomy prepares God's people to understand what God's chosen king will be like. King Jesus fulfills the four W's perfectly. Firstly, he is one of us. As Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Jesus needed to be fully human to understand and then to redeem us. Second W, unlike other kings, Jesus doesn't fight to take over nations or defend himself from his enemies. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Third W, Jesus has no queen, but instead his church is his bride who he dies for. Fourth, the fourth W, though he is the eternal King of Kings, the creator and therefore owner of all things, Jesus gives up the glory of heaven and is born into poverty. The danger for Israel was to choose a king like the nations around them, a king that was an expert in the ways of the world, the way that he uses to establish peace and security and prosperity. But Deuteronomy 17 tells them that they had to use the opposite of what is considered normal. And so if they had listened, they should have been anticipating a king just like Jesus. So we see from that section that God gave Israel a way to avoid picking the wrong kind of king. But he also gave the king a way of avoiding being the wrong type of king. Verses 18 to 20 give God's rules that rulers must follow. The danger for the chosen king was to rule using the same methods and motives as all the kings around him. And God's way of avoiding falling into that trap was for the king to make, verse 18, a Deuteronomy, the Greek word for a copy of the law. That's where the title of this book comes from, from this verse. Now, it's very possible that verse 18 means that the very first duty that a king had when he ascended to the throne was to sit down and handwrite a copy of these verses for himself. Possibly it means that he actually wrote a copy of the whole book of Deuteronomy for himself. Why? Why would you do that? Is this like doing lines because he was in trouble? Well, no, verse 20, because the rules that apply to those he leads apply equally to him as the king. The king's authority did not set him apart to be above the law, but to be the supreme example of one who kept the law. A leader according to God is not someone who simply tells others what to do. But as the king, as a leader, he shows them what to do. He enables them to actually do it. Which is such a contrast to how people generally use power. Back in 1887, Lord Acton wrote, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, unfortunately, it is an all-too-common observation that those with power use it to feather their own nests. George Orwell's famous novel, Animal Farm, 
criticizes the abuses that result from communism and socialism. His classic statement that all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, is poking fun at, yes, the idea in communism, but just the idea in life that people with power will selflessly use that power for the benefit of others. It's crazy. You can't expect it. And sadly, even the best of men are men at best. Even those kings in the Bible who start out humble, like King David, all too often succumb to the deceit of power. Initially, their power is used for the benefit of others, but over time they drift. And in the end, they use that power for themselves. And so Moses says almost 500 years in advance to the the future kings of Israel, keep your own copy of Deuteronomy on your bedside table. Have it as the poster on your study wall. Read it all the days of your life so that you do not ever start thinking that you are better than everyone else. While the king was to be the highest leader in the land, by reading Deuteronomy, he would learn to revere the Lord his God. He wouldn't get puffed up. He wouldn't get a big head and think he's great. The king, according to God's definition, has only derived power, authority, submitted to God's ultimate authority. And yet from the behaviour of the kings recorded in the Bible in Samuel and Kings, it seems very unlikely that any of the kings actually kept this rule in Deuteronomy 17. As we saw earlier, Solomon's highlights are actually his lowlights. And so it is right for us to read this as the explanation of why Israel's monarchy failed so badly. But again, it's not just about history. This book prepares us for Jesus. Jesus is clearly the sole example of a king who knew and lived by Deuteronomy. When tempted by Satan, each time he quotes Deuteronomy to show the way of living that actually pleases God. He demonstrates how the words of Deuteronomy 6 and 8 reject the shortcuts that Satan offered him. But more than simply memorised responses or knowing the right answers for the test, Jesus knows the underlying purposes of the law as told in Deuteronomy. It was all about trusting God rather than trusting in ourselves, of following God's ways rather than establishing our own. And so unlike Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who reject God's instructions and replace them with their own ways, In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus can pray, take this cup from me, and yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' trust in his Father revealed itself in perfect obedience, perfect submission. But Jesus also helpfully takes this a step further and doesn't leave it just being something for the kings, which is a great example for us as we read the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17 lists commands which needed to be obeyed by Israel, that needed to be obeyed by Israel's kings. If they didn't, there were consequences. Now, Deuteronomy 17 is fulfilled by King Jesus' obedience of them. And yet they also establish principles by which we respond 
to Jesus' death in our place. It is not just kings who need to trust in God rather than what the nations around them trust in. Isn't that what we need to be doing likewise? It is not just the king that is in danger of trusting in weapons, wives and wealth. We too can chase after power, politics and possessions. The dangers that the king was supposed to lead God's people away from are the pitfalls that far too many of us still fall into. And so rather than attempting to find our purpose in life, our peace and security in the things that the world seeks after, we instead will take God at his word. And finally, it's not just the kings who need to learn to revere God's word and treat others as equals. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus says, Jesus called them aside and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their superiors exercise authority over them. It shall not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great, become great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus draws out there in Matthew what is initiated in Deuteronomy, that the way to be a great leader is to be humble. Though Jesus could have used his power to look after his own interests, Jesus used his power for others' good. He served in order to save. He washed the feet of those that he led. And he expects the way that he led to be our way too. We will all have roles of leadership, whether it's something in an organisation, a business, in your own family. And so as leaders, we are left with some significant questions to ask. Are we trusting in the things that the world trusts in? Do we pick leaders like the nations do, thinking only of the benefits that those leaders will bring to us? Or do we follow King Jesus, the only king who rules as God commanded? In our roles of leadership... Do we lead as those who lord it over others or those who lower ourselves on behalf of others? The world says that leaders are born, not made. And with regards to Jesus, they got that one right in ways that they never could have imagined. He was born, not made. But for everyone else, the book of Deuteronomy says that leaders learn to trust God, and then they lead others to also learn to trust God. While here in Australia, we may never appoint a king over us, day by day, every single one of us do decide whether to submit to the authority of the King of Kings or establish our own ways. Deuteronomy 17 remains as relevant a warning as the day Moses first spoke it. Who is your king? Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you that these are not just rules for Israel, you know, placed far away and a long time ago, but they are rules that were shown to be broken and that led to consequences. 
They were then rules that were perfectly fulfilled by you so that we would understand what it truly looks like to be the Lord.